Well, good morning. My name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Romans this morning, and we're picking up in chapter 5. And the title of our message this morning is Amazing Grace, the Hope of Reconciliation. Amazing Grace, the Hope of Reconciliation. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, by your Spirit, I ask that you would open up your word to us. Help us to see all of the riches that we have in Christ. First and foremost, that through Christ we are now at peace with you. And this peace, it gives us access to all of the riches and all of the benefits and all of the goodness that you have stored up for us, all by the power of your Spirit and through Jesus Christ our Savior. May we see these things and know them and love them this morning, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. I'm yet again reading through uh, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's become somewhat of a fall tradition for me to, to do so. And I'm currently in book one, The Fellowship of the Ring. And for those not familiar with The Lord of the Rings, I want to give you a little bit of background. So The Lord of the Rings fantasy novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it is a novel that takes place in this fictional land of Middle Earth. And the inhabitants of Middle Earth are people like elves who are immortal and the wisest of all beings. You have humans, you have hobbits, you have dwarves, you have wizards, you have wicked creatures like orcs and balrogs and goblins. And the quest of this book is that they are trying to destroy a ring in order to curtail the power of the main antagonist of the novels, Sauron. Now there's a moment near the end of this first book uh, where the quest that this fellowship is on to destroy this ring, it takes a turn for the worse. So they're making, through, they're making their way through the mines of Moria, and they, and they encounter this Balrog, this demon of the ancient world. And in order to protect the fellowship, the wizard Gandalf, the leader of the group and the most powerful of the company, he fights off this Balrog, allowing the rest of the eight guys to get away. And in the process, it appears that he falls to his death. So the remaining eight companions, they make their way out of the mines of Moria, and they are grief-stricken, obviously. Uh, they are weary from their battle, and they make their way down the mountain to the forest of Lothlorien. Now here's where this is important. Lothlorien is the kingdom of the elves. And so within the realm, within the borders of this realm of the elves, the fellowship, they step into a place outside of time where their cares melt away, where they're free to mourn, where they mend their wounds, and where they rest secure, knowing that at least for a time, there is no enemy that can reach them. And even after the company leaves Lothlorien, the memory of this place sustains them in dark places. Once they had tasted of this land, this land that is unstained by evil, they are changed such that even in dark places, there was always with them the light of hope, that even the darkness could not touch. Now our passage in Romans, it gives us an even greater hope, one of which the best written fiction is only a shadow. This, morning passage, this morning's passage teaches us that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now citizens of a new realm, a new kingdom. And in this new realm, we can dwell secure in the love of God and the hope of future rest that God assures us he has secured for us. And this future hope is a hope that sin and death and the trials and difficulties of this life simply cannot touch. 
By tasting of this kingdom and living in the hope of its fullness, we are given grace to embrace and grow through the trials that this life presents us. So make no mistake, we're still on a journey. We're going to get a foretaste of the kingdom yet to come, of the grace and the peace and the love that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. But we are still in harm's way, and this life is difficult. In this life, we battle sin within us. We, we live in a fallen and broken world that is constantly pushing back against us. But always, we live as citizens of a new kingdom, a new realm, a new realm ruled by God, where peace and love and hope abound to us through Jesus Christ, a realm whose grace enables us to stand, even now, secure in the love of God. Here's the main point for this morning. Because we have been reconciled to God, we have assurance of God's love and a future hope that sustains us through the present difficulties of this life. Because we have been reconciled to God, we have assurance of God's love and future hope that sustains us through the present difficulties of this life. I have two points this morning. The first one is this. Living in the realm of grace and peace. Living in the realm of grace and peace. Now Romans 5, it's a transition in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 4 have been announcing the good news of the gospel. That there is a righteousness from God. Paul then talks about our brokenness and our need of salvation. And then he, he tells us that the salvation that we need comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. In whom we are justified. We are made right with God. And then chapter 5 begins to shift gears. So if this is who we are, if we have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, how ought we then live in response? And we see this pivot in the opening verse of chapter 5. Look with me, verse 1. Therefore, in light of all that I've been talking about in chapters 1 through 4, since we have been justified by faith, because we now have right standing with God, which is what it means to be justified... We now have certain privileges that are granted to us as citizens of God's kingdom. And the first of these privileges is verse 1, which is peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of peace, we often think of the cessation of hostilities. Peace comes to us when we are no longer at war. And... That's certainly in view here. We are no longer the enemies of God. We're no longer under the wrath of God. And so therefore we have peace with God. There's a cessation of hostilities. However, along with this meaning of peace is something that I think is more holistic. Throughout this passage there is mention not just of peace but also reconciliation. And what we find out is that these two terms are actually somewhat interchangeable for Paul in this passage. Peace and reconciliation, they capture a much bigger picture of restoration that is relational in its nature. Not only are we no longer enemies of God, we have been restored to full relational intimacy with God. It's one thing to end opposition to God. It's another thing to be restored to friendship with God and to be welcomed into his kingdom as citizens. We're not just enemies that are now neutral, we're now citizens that are welcomed. Peace and reconciliation point to the fullness of the restoration that God has given us. We now have peace with God through Jesus Christ and are reconciled to him. We are now friends of God. We are citizens of his realm and beneficiaries of the riches of his kingdom. And all of this has been given to us through Jesus Christ. 
Verse 2 gives another benefit of our justification. Through him, through Jesus Christ, this is the second benefit, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Because we've been justified and been reconciled with God, we have peace with God. We have now, now have unfettered access to God. We have unfettered access to the grace that he bestows on all of his people. Doug Mood beautifully describes this in his commentary when he talks about the grace of God as the realm into which God's redeeming work transfers the believer. We were in one, another kingdom, another realm, and we've been transferred into a realm of grace. We are now citizens of the realm of grace, citizens of the realm of God where grace reigns, citizens of a kingdom where grace reigns. The last benefit of justification given to us in these opening verses of chapter 5 is found in verse 2. Look with me again. I'm going to read these three together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have one peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have also, number two, obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And third, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the word rejoice here also has connotations of boasting. We rejoice, we, we boast. Or as Doug Moo again says, we are joyfully confident of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God here is a state of God-likeness or Christ-likeness that's been lost. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. There's a glory that we have lost. We are not like God as we ought to be. And what's promised here is we now have the hope of being like God. That one day, through this life, we are becoming more and more God-like. But one day, we will receive the full glory of which we were designed to receive, where we will be like God, fully glorified as God designed us to be. And we are to rejoice. We are to boast. We are to be confidently joyful in this hope of future glory, the glory of God, when we will finally be like God. Now, I want you to note something about these opening verses. Note the tenses, like the grammatical tenses. Past tense, we have been justified. We have peace with God. We have obtained access by faith. All past tense, things that are ours through Christ. We then have the future. We rejoice in the hope, the future hope of the glory of God. And we have the present. We have access by faith into this grace in which we now Stand, past, future, present. What Christ has done is already ours. We have justification. We have peace. We have access. What Christ will one day bring about to completion the hope of the glory of God when we shall be like him. He has set this hope before us. And it should shape how we now live. There's past grace and there's future grace that lead to a present grace in our life. Grace in which we now stand. And we need this present grace in order to face the difficulties of this life. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of glory, but we rejoice in our sufferings. This is taking a turn. Hope of glory to sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Because we have just been justified, we are now at peace with God, have access to his grace to live in the hope of a future glory. And because we have all of these things, we can be joyfully con confident, not just in a future glory, but in a present grace that helps us in the moment of suffering. 
And we can embrace these sufferings because we can see that God is at work. There is progress that is happening as we begin to embrace these sufferings. Note the progression. The word sufferings here points to outward circumstances that bring us distress. As we access God's grace to stand in the midst of these sufferings, these sufferings, rather than destroy us, actually produce in us endurance. It produces in us a growing capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulties. This endurance, in turn, produces character in us. The, the, the endurance, it begins to shape us. We begin to, through the suffering and through the endurance, become, begin to look more and more like Christ as we embrace these sufferings and stand in the grace that we have access to. And then this character, it leads us to hope. The more Christ-like we become, the more we long for the fullness of the hope of being like Christ in heaven. The hope of a day when we will no longer need to suffer, when we will no longer battle with our sin, with our lostness, with a broken world, when we will finally be like Christ. Now an apt illustration of this progression can be found in the progress we make as we exercise. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you that although I have the appearance of being in immaculate physical shape, I am not well acquainted with what many of you call exercise. <laughs> so like all good pastors who are looking for information on topics they don't understand, we turned to Wikipedia. I turned to Wikipedia and looked up exercise, and I searched it to confirm what I'm about to share with you. Otherwise, it would simply be anecdotal. All right. The act of exercising... It is akin to suffering in this passage. But as we embrace the suffering of exercise, we begin to see what was at first hard is now becoming easier. We begin to grow in our endurance. And this endurance, if we continue to embrace it, will change our physical attributes, uh, the character of our bodies, if you want to think of it that way. We begin to see muscles emerged and increased cardiovascular capacity, better sleep, weight loss, etc. And often the act of exercising is, and its results are driven by a future hope. Smaller suit or dress size, feeling physically well, lower long-term health risks, seeing a certain number on the scale when we step on it in the morning. Suffering leading to endurance, leading to character, and all living in light of a future hope. In a far more profound way, this passage points to a spiritual transformation that takes place as we stand in the grace of God and embrace the transformative work that God is seeking to accomplish in us through suffering. Suffering leading to endurance, leading to character, leading to hope. Paul then gives us a rather remarkable promise to aid us in our motivation to embrace this process. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we rest in the justification and the peace that are ours, when we stand in the grace that is ours through Christ, we have a hope that will not put us to shame. More than that, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself dwells within us. And through the Holy Spirit, love has been poured out into our hearts. In other words, God has not left us to ourselves. In the midst of our suffering and our enduring and our growth in character, he pours his love into us. He indwells us by the power of his spirit, enabling us, reminding us, this is who you are. 
You have been justified. You are at peace with me. I love you. My grace is present for you to stand in right now. And if you will embrace this through this suffering, you will become more and more like me. And one day, the hope that you long for will be a reality. You will be like me. This is what God does for us as citizens of his kingdom. Secure within the realm of God's grace and peace and love, we are enabled and empowered to embrace suffering, leading to endurance, leading to character, and culminating in the fullness of a hope that will not put us to shame. Now, the biggest challenge we face in applying these truths, at least in my experience, is remembering them on Monday. You all can hear this, you might enjoy it for a moment, but then we go to lunch and then we have some dinner and then we sleep and tomorrow morning when the pressures and the worries and the challenges and the sufferings of life come upon us, they just seem to wash over us and it's like they erase our memory. Everything we thought we knew goes away and we suddenly think we are alone in facing the sufferings that are before us. And so what God calls us to do is as far as we are able to remind ourselves each and every day of whose kingdom we belong to and the privileges that we have as citizens. Friends, remember, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, welcomed into the realm of God's grace and love. You have been declared right with God. You are right with God. You no longer need to earn salvation. He's not waiting for you to do something in order to love you. You are right with God. You have peace with God. He is not angry with you. He's not disappointed with you. He does not stand aloof from you. In fact, he loves you and welcomes you over and over and over again through Jesus Christ. You have access to the grace of God, unfettered access to the abounding grace of God. And God's spirit dwells within you and he is there to remind you of how much God loves you. You have a hope that darkness and sin and death and suffering simply cannot touch. And God calls us to remind ourselves of this, to remember these things and begin to live and walk in the good of these things. In light of these things, we can face the sufferings that this life brings upon us. You may be experiencing them now. If you are not, you will. Suffering will come. And what God is promising is that we have access to all we need in order to face that suffering and see God's redemptive work through it. As Paul says later in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The love that's been poured into our hearts... No one can separate us from that love which is in Christ Jesus. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what is promised to us. We no longer need to live in fear of the sufferings of this life nor despair when we are in the midst of them. God is with us and he says he will never let us go. By the power of his spirit, he is pouring out his grace and his love upon all the citizens of his realm. Now our second point, very briefly, is all about the assurance that God gives us of this love. Now in theory, 
God should be able to speak verses 1 through 5, and that should be sufficient for us. But we are forgetful. We are dense. We often don't believe. And so God always, in spite of simply telling us that he loves us, he wants to demonstrate his love for us and give us assurance so that when our faith wavers and when we wonder whether God is really with us, we have assurance of his love. Point number two, assurance of the love of God. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In these verses, God gives us assurance of his love. We see the great lengths that God went to in order to save us and demonstrate his love for us. We didn't seek after God. He came after us. He didn't rescue us because we were worthy. He rescued us in spite of our unworthiness. And to illustrate this point, Paul, in the midst of this argument, he compares God's love and willingness to sacrifice with our reluctance to do the same. I think it's fair to say that many of us would be willing to give our lives for the people that we love. I think that's fair. I think there would be some of us who would be willing to give our lives for a stranger in need. There would be probably very few of us who would be willing to give our lives for someone who is our enemy. But thankfully, God is not like us. Do you have any doubt that God loves you or his presence is with you in the midst of suffering? I want you to doubt no more. God's love for you has been demonstrated beyond any doubt. When we were weak, not when we were strong, the father gave his son to die for us. And he didn't die for the righteous or the worthy or the seeker. He died for the ungodly, the enemy of God. God made peace when we were his enemies and he did so at cost to himself. Christ died for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the weak, for those in rebellion against him so that we might know peace with him. And we who were ungodly and sinners and enemies are now justified. We've been declared righteous. We who once fought against God are now welcomed as citizens into his kingdom. And we now have unfettered access to the king that we once despised and whom we fought against and resisted. We know this love and this grace in abundance and it is all a free gift given through Christ. Friends, if God has done this for us, how much more will he be with us in the midst of our suffering in this life? Or as we read in our assurance of pardon from Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul then ends with this cascade of much more, much more, more than that. Look with me in verses 9 through 11. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by his, the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Paul wraps up this section with just waves of God's grace and goodness upon us. Assurance after assurance after assurance. In Christ we've been declared righteous, therefore we no longer fear the wrath of God. In Christ we have peace with God, therefore we have life that is inextinguishable. In Christ we rejoice and we boast and we are joyfully confident before God because we who were once enemies are now at peace with God. We have been reconciled to our maker and our redeemer. Friends, have no doubt of the love of God for you. His love for you is vast and it is free. His grace surrounds us. It is past grace. It is future grace. It is present grace for us. We were once enemies. We are now at peace. We were once sinners. We've now been made right. We are citizens of the realm of God's grace, peace, and love. Take some time this week and revel in this goodness. You are right with God. You are at peace with God. You have access to God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you and is pouring out God's love into your heart. And all of this through no merit of own, your own, simply by the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. As citizens of the realm of God's love and grace, all these things are yours. And no one can take them from you. And you can live in the good of these things even in the face of suffering. Because even in suffering, God is at work. To make us more and more like Christ. All of these are ours through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel truly is good news. May we live in the good of it this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for those who are very much living through suffering. And I know that they're present. It may be. The loss of a loved one, physical ailments, battling anxiety or depression, aimlessness. And Father, I pray that you would redirect each of our hearts in the midst of our suffering. Rather than our suffering blinding us, may we be able to see through the suffering of our lives and see your goodness poured out to us. And may you begin to work through that suffering to make us more like you. Give us endurance. Shape our character. Remind us of our hope. Hope that has been given to us through Jesus Christ and poured into our hearts by your spirit. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.